Hey, just a heads up that the following content may be disturbing or triggering for some listeners and is not appropriate for children. Please take care of yourself and others who may be listening with you. Welcome to the Bonus Babies Podcast, a show that has no easy answers, only hard questions. I found that the version of events that had been presented to me as a teenager was pretty different than what I dug up interviewing people and reading the documents, and that there were just so many things that I could not have known at 15 and 16 and 17, and, um, you know, about my parents' mental states, about the way the system worked, um, and... You know, my experience with both the foster care system and the mental health system was that I felt like I was bad. Like I was in foster care because I was uncontrollable. I was choosing to be a difficult child. And that really stuck, that stuck with me into adulthood. Even after I had graduated from Harvard, was working as a software engineer at Google and For me, it was only the process of researching this book and putting it together into a cohesive narrative that allowed me to see what was actually going on. Can you tell me what you call the kids who you've cared for over the years? We feel that the children that we receive coming into our home are bonuses. So we call them bonus babies. I love that. This is your host, Jane Amelia Larson, and I'm Akasa a court-appointed special advocate volunteer for youth in foster care. Yeah, I know, it's a mouthful. In the same way ACASA works, I explore all things in the foster care maze by talking to kids, parents, caregivers, attorneys, social workers, therapists, really anybody and everybody who will speak to me to keep the conversation open and the information flowing about all things CASA. Hi, this is Jake Eberly, the producer of the Bonus Babies podcast. And today, Jane Amelia speaks with Emmy Neatfeld. Emmy is the author of Acceptance, a memoir from Penguin Press, and an Amazon Best Book of August 2022. Emmy spent her teens in foster care, residential treatment centers, and endured stints of homelessness. Somehow, she made it to Harvard, worked as a software engineer for Google and Facebook, and now is a full-time writer and speaker. Enjoy the episode. Hey, I'm here with Emmy Neefeld, right? Yep, that's it. Hi. Um, so I just finished your book, and wow, it's such a moving and complicated story. And I know it just came out, and I know it's really doing well. So congratulations to you. I know how hard it is to write a book. Thank you so much. My hat's off to you. So um, even though you write all about this, I just want to hear you talk about your experiences. So tell me a little bit about who you are, where you're from, family of origin, that kind of thing. My name is Emmy Niedfeld, and I was born in Minnesota to a two-parent family. I grew up pretty evangelical Christian until my dad um, came out as trans and changed her name to Michelle when I was nine. And it was back in the 2000s. There was very little awareness and my family at that point kind of fell apart and both of my parents had mental illnesses that became more and more apparent in the divorce and the separation. So I ended up spending time in a treatment center for kids with behavioral and emotional problems in foster care and at times homeless. 
the whole time obsessed with college admissions. And I ended up getting into Harvard and working at Google. But I found that that did not erase what had happened before that, as I had hoped it would. Right. So I want to ask about your dad, who later became Michelle. Did As you look back on it now, did you have any sense of that there was this change coming? Because the way you describe him in the book is that he was kind of a hard ass about women's roles and men's roles. But then he ended up becoming a woman. So I'm curious now as you look back, or maybe you even sensed it then, that there was something that was fluid. Yeah. I use... So I use the term my father sometimes when I'm talking about the period before the transition, in part because it was such a patriarchal role that Michelle played in my life. Um, And I used to use the terminology around her becoming a woman, um, but now I realize that she she was inside already a woman. And... And so there was this kind of difference between the role that Michelle was playing in my life, like as the father and who she was inside. And I think that that led to a lot of the kind of really strict way I was raised um, to some of the kind of difficulty that my mom went through. Like it was a it was a very turbulent marriage um, right. And there was also domestic violence, you said, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. there was domestic violence. Um, and, you know, and I think it was a, it was a really complicated, it was a complicated situation that at the time I was just too young to understand because I was like, if, if you know, if you make each other so unhappy, why don't you just divorce? But then divorce is pretty common in our society, but it really can upend a family and in my case, you know, my parents' marriage, as imperfect as it was, kind of was a stabilizing force for both of my parents. And the specifics of getting a divorce, especially adding in, you know, a transition when nobody understood what gender transitioning was, that, you know, it created debt, conflicts, and really set the stage for me to not really have any parent who was able to take care of me. Right. And there was also a fierce custody battle, but you wanted to stay with mm-hmm. your dad at first. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wanted to stay with Michelle because she had, she had been there when I was growing up. Um, my mom was working full time and uh, working on a, a rental property. And so I kind of had this, this bond with Michelle and it, you know, I understand that both of my parents had emotional issues and there's a really complicated calculus that goes into it for custody evaluators, but it was super demoralizing to be, you know, to be a human and to be like, I, you're asking me what I want and I'm telling you, and then you're just going to say, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And that actually happened to you throughout your life to a great deal, but you seem to have come out the other side of it. I know that's not an easy fix and I'm not implying anyone ever gets the other side of anything really, <laughs> you know, if you, you know, cause it's always about your constant growth. But I know when I was reading your book, I was really struck how often you say, I was telling people, I was asking for help. I was, I was telling people what I needed and you never got it. Yeah. That was a constant theme, especially with, with the people who were supposed to help with therapists where my mom was a hoarder. And I told them, you know, I, 
we don't have hot water because the pilot light went out and we couldn't get to the water heater for a good six months in the winter in Minnesota. And I just found again and again that so much of it was about credibility. And because my mom was an adult, she had the credibility. And because she was a white, college educated, mm -hmm. well spoken, mm -hmm. well spoken, mm -hmm. charming adult, mm -hmm. that she was going to be believed. And I was a dirty, disorganized kid, in part because of what was happening at home. And so that made me unbelievable. Yeah. So can you paint the picture for us? Because when you say hoarder, you know, a lot of people think oh, a hoarder. So they got stacks of newspapers, but that's not really what we're talking about. What happened there? My mom was a compulsive shopper and she loved clearance deals. So every night, basically, she would be at Target, Rainbow Foods, Walgreens, every store in the area looking for swell bargains, as she called them. And pretty soon, this filled up basically every inch of our apartment. And right, so she, there were... Right, she wasn't doing anything. She wasn't doing anything with those no. things. She wasn't giving them away. Or, or she was giving some away, but... Like, what? why do you think, I mean, you know, I know there's a obsessive compulsive with a, with a hoarders, but what was she filling up, you think? Well, she had a difficult childhood. I can't really, I can't really speculate on what her, you know, on her, what her reasons were, her motivations. But back then in kind of the early 2000s, it was before the hoarders TV show. And so there wasn't even that language of being a hoarder. Right. right? Now we've seen Nobody it on TV, had... but then you didn't see it exactly. on TV. Right? And so like it, people thought, okay, this woman just has a lot of stuff, right? Or you think, okay, she has a garage and in that garage there's organized boxes, maybe stacks of newspapers, stuff you'd hope someone would throw away, but she didn't. And instead it was like, we had narrow paths going through the rooms of our house and between those paths mice would you know dart across the it room was a party. in the middle of the yeah, day party completely the fearless mice, right? yeah <laughs> yeah and it was squalor after a while so i know you told people about that people didn't pay attention to you they didn't believe you they believed your mom and then it was at 11 it was suggested to you that you go to a shelter uh but you ended up kind of protecting your mom like somebody came to the door what what happened for years i was telling these adults in my life doctors and therapists because my mom was taking me to therapy um i told them about the conditions at home and my hope was that somebody could give my mom like a talking to and tell her you have to change and basically force her to do so and instead, what happened was I became increasingly sick, physically depressed, and eventually I was assigned a county social worker after I had been hospitalized in the psych ward several times. And she came to my house when my mom was away at work and asked me to let her inside. And then it became really clear to me that nobody was going to tell my mom to change, that Basically, the options were things could keep going as they were, or I could let the social worker inside. My mom's house would probably be condemned. Child Protective Services, which actually was not involved, even though I had a social worker, they would become involved and I would probably be taken away like that afternoon. And, you know, for all of her problems, my mom really loved me 
and was my biggest advocate in many ways. And she would never forgive me. And I was going to lose that. So I made the decision not to let the social worker inside. Wow. You know, and to have to make that decision as a young girl. And even if you, you're not sure what child protection services is, you know, someone's going to come to the door and ruin your mom's life and essentially your life. So you were just going to suck it up and try to get through it. Yeah. Yeah. Then unfortunately, things got worse for you, right? There were continued diagnoses, medication, hospitalizations. So what was that like to spend your early life like in that kind of instability? My mom's, our living space felt like a prison. It felt like there was no, well, okay, let me re-say that because I don't want to be disrespectful of people who are in the actual carceral system. But living with my mom felt like being completely trapped. Like there was no way out. The idea of waiting until I turned 18 felt completely unbearable. And so I became increasingly desperate for ways to either end my life or distract myself. And I had always been a really academic kid, but I couldn't hear myself think in this environment. And I was taking these medications that were increasingly intense that made it hard for me to focus or think. And so by the time I was 14, I just couldn't keep holding on. Tell me about Methodist Hospital because you ended up there for quite a while and you, you talk about it a lot in your book. So paint the picture for me. Like, what, did, what was it like when you walked in? What was, it, what was the feeling? When I was 14, I was sent to an eating disorder unit at a suburban hospital called Methodist Hospital. And I had been to the psych ward a few times. And you liked the psych ward in a way because it was, like, it. Yeah. it was like good food and clean and showers, right? It was like a retreat after <laughs> being at home. Yeah. Um, and the kids were more like me, right? Like we were from a similar socioeconomic background, more like working class. And this eating disorder clinic was completely different. The girls there were from the Minnesota suburbs, generally all pretty wealthy, um, whites, but they felt like a totally different variety of white than me and my mom. I felt like white trash there. And I just saw these other people having their mental illnesses being treated so differently than mine were, right? Because I felt I was always being told that I was responsible for my misery, that I was making myself sick, that I was kind of a bad person for feeling sad and depressed. And at Methodist, people's eating disorders were treated as if it was just a result of them being too perfect. Mm, really? Huh. Yeah. And it's it's kind of a stereotype, which is maybe weird that it was happening, but it that was the attitude that these women girl and girls just had so much good inside of them that they were turning against themselves. And if they could just direct that energy to the correct ambition, they would be super successful. Wow. How, how, what a conundrum, huh? 
Yeah. I mean, I think that's probably great to tell people, but I just felt like that does not apply to me. Right. Cause you, cause I was all see- messed up at home and there wasn't anybody saying this girl's in trouble because of what's happening to her at home. Exactly. It was very clear that my life was not like those girls' lives and my family was not like their family. And they had family centered treatment, which is the main treatment that's used for eating disorders in adolescents today. And it works really well for people who have healthy families. <laughs> and for me, it was like they were just trying to give my mom one more way to control me. Right. And is it there that you met Dr. Woods? So I had an outpatient psychiatrist who really changed my life. I call her Dr. Woods. And I met her a few months before I went to Methodist. And she gave me kind of an ominous warning that I had to choose to be well. Okay, so that's odd itself. But I understand that you appreciate how frank she was with you and often very mm-hmm. direct and just didn't, yeah. didn't you know, she just, she's just not a bullshitter. But she's essentially saying you can choose. You're choosing to be ill or you can choose to be well. Yeah. And I, that's a very complicated statement and problematic in many ways. I spend a lot of acceptance puzzling through what that means. And I do believe that she really changed my life. And I think reading this book, I hope readers see that a lot of people were very complicated and said and did things that were sometimes really harmful and they still changed my life often for the better. Yeah. I'm, I was also struck by that, that, um, I don't know how to say this exactly, but there's no vengeance in your story. You know, there, even for the foster family that ended up taking you in just after that, right. That, that really did not work for you. You didn't work with them. It wasn't the right family, but, and then I, Upon reading it, I feel in many ways they truly mistreated you. you. You're pretty sweet to them by the end. I appreciate you saying that. And I think a lot of it is the perspective that comes with age and also that is forced in a way with writing. Yeah, um, you kind of work through it a little bit, right? Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, when I was a teenager, the only people I had to blame were myself or the adult sitting right in front of me. And then as I've learned more, I can see, okay, there were these systems at play that put us into situations we should not have been in and made my life a lot harder. Right. And what was it around then that you started to self-harm or or was that happening beforehand? Because you also attempted suicide prior to that, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, you had a really rough, you you realize that. I mean, of course you do. You you thought a lot about it. Yeah, it was a really it was a really trying time when I was, you know, 13, 12 and 13, um especially the year I was 13. Um and I was self-harming a little bit. I had an eating disorder. I tried to kill myself. And um yeah, they sometimes they say that that stuff is a cry for help, but I'm like, if it's a cry for help, it certainly did not work. Right. So <laughs> So when you were self-harming, what, um, it, what, what did it feel like? I 
think about it and what comes to mind is just relief. Just, you know, later on I got involved in sports and fitness and that feeling of after a long run or really hard workout where I just feel calm and like the stress has just drained out of my body. That was how it felt. Right, but that's endorphins, right? That's not the same as like blood running down your leg. Or was it? I I I don't know. Like I can't <laughs> I um to me it's just so intertwined. Yeah. Yeah. Like I don't you know, I it didn't feel bad, you know? No, it didn't feel bad and you used it as a release, but then there were yeah. scars, right? That were that mm-hmm. reminded you of what you were doing that you didn't want people to see. Yeah. And I think at the time I didn't really I didn't really care. I was, you know, because it's I ha- I you know, I still have a lot of scars, right? Like h- hundreds. But back then I couldn't imagine having a future where it would matter. Oh, right. It was Minnesota. It was the winter. It, you know, I couldn't see a year in front of me. Right. I couldn't see three months in front of me. Um, And I think it's I think to me, the cutting is something where it, you know, it's gross. It's gruesome if you're not doing it, maybe even if you are. Um, And yet I think it was really I don't want to glorify it in any way. And I think it can lead down some really, really dark paths. But it was something that kind of helped me get through. Mm -hmm. And I think it would have been really useful to me if my foster parents and other adults in my life had a better understanding of the utility that it gave me. Right. It gave you control to a certain degree, didn't it? Definitely. That too. And I think we underestimate how few choices often that teenagers and children who are in these situations have where as an adult, you know, you can go out, you can go dating, you can have a drink, you, you know, there's a lot of different ways to cope that are at your disposal that when you're a teenager in a foster home or in a hoarder house, you just don't have quite as many options. Yeah, I think that's particularly true in foster care, and people don't realize that. They they think kids go into foster care, and then uh, I, ideally, hopefully, there's a pretty good family, and they help the kid. But often, there's a lot of rules that the kid would hadn't had before mm-hmm. that moment, and rules they don't like, yeah. right? And rules they don't understand. Yeah. And sometimes there's extra rules put in place by the system. Like, when I was in foster care, I started hanging out with people from school and just, you know, the straight A honor roll kids. And this girl would come pick me up and we went to go work on our novels together at a coffee shop, writing novels. And when I told my social worker, she couldn't, she, she, you know, she was like, that's so wonderful. And then I found out you're not allowed to go in people's cars. You're not allowed to go over to other people's houses if there's nobody there. And that's just not the way being a teenager is supposed to no, work. No, that's not a normal childhood. That just it's like you're you're in a bad situation and then you have even more rules and more confinements that 
that for, like in that case, you found out about later, right? The social worker said one thing and then reported to your foster parents what was going on. And they were like, nope, yeah. you're not doing that. My foster parents were actually really reasonable. You know, they wanted me to go go to the mall with your friends, like do normal teenage stuff. But it was the county rules that this wasn't allowed to happen. So then eventually, though, you found photography, you found art, you found at least a little bit of a way out. So talk to me about that. After, so after I was hospitalized at Methodist, I spent a year in this treatment center for troubled teenagers. And from there, I was discharged into foster care. And I got to go to this new high school that was in the suburbs and had a lot of amenities that my home high school in the city didn't have. And one of the best parts of that was photography. They had a full black and white photography lab. And my teacher, Miss J, was this super awkward nerd who spent a lot of extra time in her classroom and would let students just be there when she was there. So every day after school, I would just work in the dark room. And I wanted to spend like every minute that I could with her because she was such, she wasn't overly warm or like effusively nice, but she was just a really supportive presence who really valued hard work and her students who tried. And it just made me feel like I belonged. Yeah, that'd be perfect for you, I would think, right? Yeah, yeah, it was great. Did you talk about photography at all with your mom? Because your your mom was a, a crime scene photographer. It was a way that my mom and I bonded. Even though we, you know, I was in foster care living roughly an hour away on Sundays. That was our visit day. So she would pick me up and we would go into the city to take photographs or eventually we started going figure drawing, um, which I could not tell my foster parents about because they would have freaked out that I was drawing naked people. Naked people, especially naked men, right? There were <laughs> naked men, naked men, naked women, <laughs> naked, all kinds of bodies. <laughs> okay, so how did you end up at Interlochen? When I was in this photography class, my photo teacher, she knew that I was in foster care. She was one of the only people who did because I had to ask her for a waiver for the class fee. And she suggested that I should go to summer camp and agreed to help me apply. So after I'd spent one school year in foster care, I went to the summer camp in Michigan. And it was really hard for me to get there um, because of there was drama with my foster parents where they didn't think I was emotionally ready and kind of tried to sabotage it. And it was just a twisted thing, but I ended up being able to go. Um, my future afterwards was a little bit uncertain because my foster parents were giving up my room because I was going to be gone. But it was this idyllic summer camp in the woods in Michigan where I just got to spend six weeks, seven weeks, just immersed in art and with all these other high school artists and musicians and dancers who were as serious about their craft as I was. And they had a boarding school and I had been 
planning to go to the University of Minnesota at a really small campus where I could live in the dorms. But instead, I was convinced to apply to boarding school at Interlochen and ended up starting the new school year there as a junior. Right. So do you feel that that, if it hadn't been for that, your life would have been really different? I think so. I I write about this in the book, but I had really wanted to go to an Ivy League school. This was something in my family where my mom had dreamed about going to Stanford, and she believed that her life would have been totally different if she had. And, you know, I was going to go to the same campus of the University of Minnesota that she went to. And I worried that my life was going to kind of follow a similar track as hers did, you know, with some men who weren't like the best partners and just that it was going to be really hard for me to kind of find my own life and my own stability. So going to Interlochen was really my chance to achieve my big dream that I was afraid to admit even to myself. Because if I didn't get into a top school that could give me a full scholarship, I would have basically spent the money that I had saved from my grandmother. She put aside some money for me to go to college and that was going to be used towards boarding school, towards the amount that my scholarship didn't cover. Right. But even so, I mean, your drive is just immense. It seems like there were so many adults who failed you, but then every now and then adult might help. But it was your drive that maintained you all the way through. So you end up in boarding school, but it's not like you have any place to go afterward. You end up living out of your car, right? And things don't really get easier for you. They just get more complicated. They get fulfilling in some aspects, but more and more complicated as you're growing up and figuring out what's next for me. How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? How am I going to do that? I mean, it's kind of exhausting to read even. I can't imagine what it felt like to have to go through that. It felt like every single day could be the day that that broke me. That every day I had to be perfect. I had to, you know, study super hard and that all that it would take was slipping once and the whole project could be for nothing. Right. So your focus now is on getting into an Ivy League school. And there's you had this idea about Yale and you had this idea about Columbia. And then and somehow you finagled a private coach for that would have cost tens of thousands of dollars to help you get into school. And then you end up offhandedly applying to Harvard and getting in on a full ride. And I, I know that you must have like totally enjoyed that, but all it did really also was create more obstacles for you to figure out how to get that managed, right? It definitely, it both took a lot of burdens off of me and there were new hurdles to navigate. I think it's one of the big misconceptions that when a young person who's in this kind of tenuous family situation gets an opportunity that it's going to be straightforward for them to navigate it. And like boarding school was a great example because like you mentioned during school breaks, I had to just stay with whatever friend would take me, ended up sleeping in the backseat of my car, going to a shelter. And when I was at Harvard, I started I had started dating this guy who was 10 years older and the relationship became pretty abusive. 
but I relied on him to help me understand how do things at Harvard work and give me a place to stay during the school breaks when the dorms closed. Right. He offered a certain amount of security, even though that security was super abusive. I was so happy in the book when you finally got rid of him. I shouldn't tell people that. Of course she got rid of him. I mean, it's not a spoiler alert. She got, of course she got rid of him for Christ's sake. But Um, All right. So you graduate from school and you end up traveling to Europe and then, and then that's hard too. Yeah. So that was after high school. Um, You know, I, it's hard to talk about. And I also think it's really important because when I was, staying with people, like going from place to place by myself, I kind of always felt this sense of danger that something bad could happen to me at any time. And I, like, I was traveling in Europe after I graduated from high school. Basically, I didn't have anywhere to stay in the U.S. And I had some money from a contest and I was like, I might as well go to Europe. Um, And so I was in Budapest and two men who were working at a hostel set me up and one of them raped me. And it was one month to the day after I graduated high school. I had, you know, recently gotten into Harvard and I was convinced that it was because of Harvard, because I had wanted too much, that it was something about me. This um, is what you were saying to yourself, and, that it was, that it was yeah, something about you yeah. that, that, that allowed it to happen. Definitely. Because I had, I had really believed that if I achieved something big, like got into Harvard, that I would be safe and that I you know, that this wasn't the type of thing that was going to happen to me anymore, you know? But of course, you're like a young girl all alone. I mean, very vulnerable, even if, even if you're super street savvy, even if you, you've been living a little bit out of your car. You're, I mean, that's, yeah. you're, you were 17 years old. Yeah. And that vulnerability was something that was hard for me because I felt like I was praised for being so strong and so resilient and that when someone did hurt me, that I was held responsible for being vulnerable when I had been vulnerable this whole time. Of course. Yeah. And that guy flat out lied to you. And it was only later because you were, had the, um, the wherewithal and the means to hire a private investigator. Did you actually figure out what all went down or to, as, as well as you could many years Mm -hmm. after the fact? Yeah. Yeah. It was my research philosophy for the book was no stone Mm -hmm. left unturned. And so for people who go out and get acceptance, I tried writing the main body of the text to really not to really stick with what I knew as a teenager and take readers through kind of the immediacy of what was going on. And I hope that it's satisfying at the end in the epilogue I talked through some of the research that I did and things that really surprised me and just turned my life upside down to learn. Yeah, and of course, that's related to the your title, right? Acceptance. I mean, mm-hmm. and but what I find so that you didn't just let it lay. You said, I'm going to figure out 
what happened to me. I'm going to talk to as many people as I can, not just about that event, but about many events, right? You're, uh, to, you try to get mm. any kind of records you can get. You weren't, you weren't entirely successful. You really dug deep, not just for this book, but for your own well-being, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I found that the version of events that had been presented to me as a teenager was pretty different than what I dug up interviewing people and reading the documents and that there were just so many things that I could not have known at 15 and 16 and 17 and, um, you know, about my parents' mental states, about the way the system worked. Um, and, you know, my experience with both the foster care system and the mental health system was that I felt like I was bad. Like I was in foster care because I was uncontrollable. I was choosing to be a difficult child. And that really stuck, that stuck with me into adulthood. Even after I had graduated from Harvard, was working as a software engineer at Google. And for me, it was only the process of researching this book and putting it together into a cohesive narrative that allowed me to see what was actually going on. You mentioned your older brother, Noah, your half-brother. At, I remember reading at the beginning of the book, and I kept on thinking, what happened to him? Where did he go? Why, why, why isn't he helping? Doesn't he have, she have a relationship with him? And you answer that later, but I'm, I, I'm curious now, what kind of a relationship do you have with him? Um, we are actually closer now than we were before. I thought that this book would kind of end my relationships with the family mem- with a lot of family members that actually I was able to get to the truth with them and move forward. Um, my so Noah is twelve years older than me, and he has five kids and my oldest nephew is actually only eight years younger than me. And so, and like my nephew under that is like 12 years younger than me. So actually we're closer in age and uh, (laughs) we're like closer, but it's just, it's really a joy to know them, to know these kids. And I really love being their aunt. And yeah, it's such a, I don't want to give anything away for people who might read it, but it is such a shame that the system did not support that relationship that I had. And actually, I didn't even think about it when I was writing the book until readers kept asking me, like, where is your brother? Like, what was happening with him? And it was only then that I realized, oh, my gosh, like, yeah, I should look into that. Well, I, you know, I think that actually really well exemplifies the kinds of the kind of uh, I don't want to say ruse, but there are a lot of lies. There, people mm-hmm. lied to you flat out, or they they didn't share things with you, or you you didn't find out something until much later, or you tried this, but nobody told anybody that you tried it. It's your story's filled with that, which is part of the reason why it's so moving and also so upsetting, um, and ultimately inspiring because it's like you you got through it, you got through it, you just keep on going and. I know you have a lot of opinions about resilience, and I do too. And 
I it's really interesting the whole end of your book about what you know the whole conversation about resilience and you write very eloquently about it and I want to ask you to read something from your book when you when you want um, if you want to do that now that's great uh, I also want to talk about what your life is like now I'm happy to read now yeah okay something that I examine a lot in the book is this idea of resilience and the way that I felt like I was expected to be completely unaffected by all these things that had happened to me, by being in foster care and by the situation that led to it, and that the only way that I was going to specifically be accepted to college was by showing that I was this overcomer who was stronger by everything I had faced. Gosh, the pressure. But gosh, oh my gosh. <laughs> I know. <laughs> it's like <laughs> I was writing college essays trying to prove that my housing instability had made me this tougher person. And then when I was done writing them, I went back and I was sleeping in my car. And so this idea kind of followed me into adulthood. And so I'm going to read a passage about how I was thinking about it in my mid-20s. In the years after I graduated from college, it made me squirm to watch the gospel of grit make its way into the mainstream. In a viral TED Talk, the psychologist Angela Duckworth prosthetized that youth in crisis needed mental toughness. From the way she talked about it, Grit was more important than food, shelter, or safety. Others seem to agree. In 2015, when a cover-up of contaminated water in Flint, Michigan was exposed, behavioral scientists flocked to the city. Combating the effects of lead poisoning required unrealistic efforts, like funding for maternal health care, pediatric nutrition, and early childhood education. Instead, the New Yorker reported, before many homes even had safe drinking water, Behavioral scientists were on the ground figuring out how to teach children a growth mindset. This doctrine was supposed to be for young people's own good. Society's constant problems, poverty, racism, violence, seemed intractable. Others, like inequality, were only becoming worse. Even in a country as rich as America, there seemed to be simply no hope of all youth having a fair chance. I recognize the emphasis on grit, as a final throwing up of hands. Kids too young to speak would be held responsible for their own problems. It didn't matter how they were wronged or how preventable the harm. Their job was to contain the damage, making the blast zone smaller by absorbing all the impact. When flagrant affronts drew the ire of society, like migrant children separated from their families and detained in tent cities, oil fields, and a converted Walmart, I found myself numb. Maybe it's for the better, I thought. Maybe the adversity will make them stronger. The doctrine of anything bad can be alchemized into something good had been so drilled into me that it seemed to apply even in this extreme situation. I was horrified by the logic I'd internalized. The whole song and dance of resilience chipped away at my humanity. It required a profound lack of empathy. It erased any pain, no matter how great, as long as it resulted in productivity. And when I wasn't productive, when I cried for hours every night for months, when I screamed when people came up behind me, when I never felt at ease, even in my home with my partner, it made me feel like a failure. 
I told my husband I wished I had not lived, that the world would be better without me. What have I even done with my life? He teased me for not starting a charity. I took this as a serious critique. I was supposed to smile in Harvard Yard, not sob in bathroom stalls. I was supposed to be happy and grateful for all I'd been given. I was supposed to exemplify post-traumatic growth, not post-traumatic stress disorder. When people asked me, was it worth it? Did an Ivy League diploma compensate for the ways I'd been mistreated? I was supposed to respond, unequivocally, yes. All the other lives that could have been mine, lost to incarceration, addiction, or lethal violence, were supposed to make my success shine in bright relief. Yet these alternative fates weighed on me. It didn't make me feel better that my generation was poorer than their parents, largely because of the crushing student loans I'd avoided. The suspicion that I would have gotten put into the justice system instead of the mental health system if I were Black or Latina gave me no relief, to put it mildly. I did not console myself. It did not console me that I had worked hard. In hindsight, my adolescence felt like buying every lottery ticket I could afford. So I, I feel there's so many points in that passage that are vital for people to hear. And I remember when I was reading it, I thought I was like, yes, yes. I mean, people need to hear this because I, I largely agree with you that there, we have all these vulnerable children that if they would just, you know, show grit and get through it and, and uh, rise to the top in spite of all these huge obstacles. And if they don't, by the way, there's something wrong with them. Mm-hmm. When actually oh, the man. problem is the adults who failed them. Yeah. I fear that this resilience talk can dull, can dull everyone's empathy and can make it less likely for people to get involved, whether it's through being a CASA or being a mentor or becoming a foster parent, because you think, you know, this is on those kids. Like those kids, they can become tougher when really resilience I believe comes from having people who support you and who have your back and who make who make you believe that you are strong because they're there behind you holding right. you up. Right. I think that's really true. So to tell me a little bit about your life now. What's your what how how are you? Well, I live in New York City with I say with my family, which is right now my husband and okay. seven <laughs> stuffed animals. Um yeah, and um, I feel very, you know, I feel like the book ends on kind of a bittersweet note, and I think it was really important for me to let myself go through all of the really difficult feelings in order to, in order to feel like I could live with them if I had to for the rest of my life, and also to give myself space to to not have them dominate me anymore. And so I feel really grateful that, you know, I feel like I have a really full life with my friends and my support system. I am a full-time writer and speaker now after being a software engineer for a number (laughs) of years. And yeah. And if, I mean, if my younger self could like see my life today and knew that it was going to be like this, I think, Everything would have been a lot easier. Well, sure, but there there would have been no way, right? Because you are who you are because of how how you've gotten through it. Yeah, and I also had some really good help along the way. Um, 
where, you know, I did not have a casa, but I did have a mentor who appears throughout the book mm-hmm. who I call Annette. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she, she's almost like a casa, you know, the way that yeah, you, yeah. You're, you're, I mean, except maybe not in terms of uh, showing up in court and that kind of thing, but exactly. she, she had yeah. your back. She had my back and through a lot of high school and, um, and she's still a part of my life today. So that's been great. Mm. Have, have you thought about being a foster parent or a CASA or doing respite care or anything like that? Yeah, I would really like to become a CASA. I am right now mentoring a teenage writer, which is my, I feel like I'm still getting used to teenagers. Like it's, <laughs> <laughs> I love, I love like being with them and their energy and Yet there's so much that I just didn't understand about the developmental stage of being a teenager that it really shocks me to think about all the people working with youth who who aren't given that training or don't have that experience. Yeah. Um, And I definitely think about becoming a foster parent someday. Yeah, I think the reason why you would be so particularly valuable, of course, is because you have been through a lot and... So it's from that insight, I think you'd be really valuable to a lot of kids. I I also think because just by reading your work and by listening to you, I think you'd be really well suited to it in part because what Akasa does is literally is she she or he is the voice of of the child. And that means you need to pay attention to the child. Mm -hmm. And it, it seems like you've, paid a lot of attention throughout your life. Thank you. Yeah, I I really admire what what CASAs are doing and I think it's just such a wonderful mission and so so important. I think so. I think yeah. if there were more more CASAs and more good foster parents and more uh, more foster parents in general just that to to take kids in. So, I mean, I, I, even when I hear the word placement, I hate that word. I was just talking about it with a bunch of casas last night. Placement, like what the hell? That's what it's called. It, you know, you're not, it's not even going into someone's home. It's replacement. I, you know, and there's so many kids that are, um, that are in need. I want to ask you one last thing that I ask all of my guests and what is the one thing now you've written a book and you've, you've shared a lot of stuff. So, I mean, you might not even have anything left, but I suspect you do. But what is the one thing that no one would ever know about you unless you told them? Oh man, that's a great, <laughs> I don't want to give you one that's too depressing. So I'm, um, I'm thinking about it a little There's bit. There's nothing about you that's depressing. I want you to know that. And, <laughs> and, and also People need to hear the truth. Mm. Um, I'm awake, I would say most nights, for at least an hour. Sometimes because I'm stressed, usually about something dumb, even though I know it's not just that dumb thing. But even if I don't take enough time to like read or relax... Like my body will physically wake me up in the middle of the night to make sure I have that time to myself. 
the time to yourself to just sit with yourself and process? I read books. That's my reading time. I read most of my books in the middle of oh, the night. So, oh, I see what you're saying. So if you go to bed too early without your reading time, you wake up, you wake yourself up in order to have your reading time. So it's like... Even if it's at 2 a.m. and then I wake up really late. Right. So it's like a way for you to check in with yourself. Yeah, but through reading. I think so. That, that's fascinating. <laughs> Yeah, I wish there were a pill to take to make it go away, but apparently there's not. <laughs> Why would you think that's depressing? That is totally cool. Well, I wake up really late, so luckily I've luckily I've only had jobs where that was that was okay. <laughs> All right, is there anything else you that you haven't shared that you that you that you want to say? You know, you this is your opportunity. Um, I think this is good. I'm glad I got a little shout out about my mentor, Annette. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I think that we covered a lot of ground. We so. have. Well, there's so much Feel more, good. but people are going to read your book. And, uh, <laughs> you know, this is just a little snippet of who you are. They're, they're going to read your book. And, oh, 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 I want to say one thing. The cover is stunning. At first, I thought it was a self-portrait, oh, but you. it turns out it was a friend of yours who took it, a mm -hmm. picture of you in school, right? Yeah, 15 years ago. You know, the funny thing is people keep thinking that, that that's me today. Oh, really? And I'm like, <laughs> do you really? I honestly, I think in some ways I look, I mean, in some ways I look older, but in some ways I look younger. Yeah, well, it's a very revealing. Distress. Yeah, well, yeah, that, but it's a very yeah. revealing photograph because it's kind, you can see that the subject is filled or is fraught with lots of stuff and yet exhausted. It's like, it's like a really mm -hmm. interesting paradox that happens in that photograph. I'm my secret is that when I imagined the book coming out, I I always knew that the title would be Acceptance. And I imagined that that picture would wow. be And I didn't tell anyone. I sh I gave them like pictures and stuff from high school, but I didn't tell anyone cuz I was like that seems like a dumb idea, nobody's going to want it. And we went through like 40 covers before they sent me this thing that I had imagined in my head. And then they were like, this is it. They're like, you don't have any more choice. This wow. is what I'm going to cover. Wow. Yeah. So okay, they did I a think great that's job. just another example of you making it happen, by the way. I mean, it's just like. <laughs> I don't know. It could have gone, you know, the thing when I think about this whole process, the things that I regret are the places that I did not mm. advocate for mm -hmm. myself. And so that's a constant struggle for me. And. And prob for, probably for all humans, right? I, I think for a lot of people. It's, that's true for me, too. I think that, you know, that it's always that fine line of how, how to be the squeaky wheel for yourself, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. Yeah. So, but it's good when, when self-care, taking care of yourself lines up with your goals. Mm -hmm. yeah. I want to thank you for all your talent and your, your, your drive and then your acceptance. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jane, for having me. Yeah. Okay. Take care. Thank you, Emmy, for sharing your story with us. And I love your take on resilience the knowing that someone has your back so that you can move forward with a cushion. And that's where the resilience lies. Because clearly it was the support that you had that helped you realize your dreams. It's very empowering. Thanks so much. Our next guest is Kendra Lukens. 
She was adopted at three years old. But when her adoptive dad died, her adoptive mother couldn't and wouldn't care for her. So she was in and out of foster care and therapeutic group homes all her adolescent life. She's now the podcaster of Hear Us Yell. So join us next week for Kendra Lukens. Thank you for listening and be well. If you see something, say something. If you suspect a child's health or safety is jeopardized in any way by parents or anyone else, contact the Child Protective Services Agency in your county. 24-hour hotlines are staffed by trained social workers who will help you through the process, and you can do so anonymously. In California, you can call the Child Protection Hotline at 800-540-4000. So if you see something, say something. You might be saving a child's life. If you want to know more about becoming a CASA anywhere in the country, go to nationalcasagal.org. And in L.A., casala.org. And if you want to know more about becoming a foster parent, check out the National Foster Parent Association at nfponline.org. There's also faithfosterfamilies.org and adoptuskids.org. There's tons of other information online as well, so you can just hunt around. We also want to thank the supremely talented Christina Apostolopoulos for her beautiful original music. You can find her music on Spotify or Instagram at Christina Aposta. And also thank you to Yukon Har for his engineering. Thanks for listening. And if you like what you hear and you find it as valuable as we do, please rate us and hit subscribe. You can also make a donation at bonusbabies.org. See you next time.